Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Yusuf, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you like to introduce me to David Morales? Or what's, yeah, it's David, David Sanchez Morales. It's the one area of the JFK case I really haven't looked into specific names just because it brings up a lot of controversy when people start pointing like who might have done it. I try to just understand the bigger picture, but you've done extensive work. I said I was going to have you back on to talk about David Sanchez Morales. And I'm hoping you can give me a breakdown of who he was, how you got interested in looking into him, and what you're able to find. Yeah, well, um, thanks, thanks, Robbie, for uh, having me back. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, David, David Sanchez Morales, I've come across through my, you know, research for a book on uh, this kind of clique of of hardline uh, CIA operatives from this period, really during the the height of the Cold War. So I've been particularly focusing on David Attlee Phillips, but uh, David Sanchez Morales was was uh, definitely. Uh, one of this this hardcore clique who were involved in uh, a number, a series of of absolutely kind of key operations running through from the kind of post-war era from the 50s through to um, the 70s. Um, and he, he kind of was in the, the U.S. Army uh, after the war. I think he was uh, stationed in, in Germany, I believe. Um, he was then eventually recruited into um, army intelligence, it seems, uh, during the, the, the late 40s and eventually into the, the CIA and into specifically the um, Directorate of Plans, which was the clandestine, the covert operations arm. Um, deal in many ways about Morales compared to some of the other figures from, from the JFK story, for example, he's um, something of a, of a he has a kind of patina of mystique about him. Um, there are some certainly some documents when you kind of search through the archives pertaining to him, but um, I, I don't think there is anything like the same volume of material that you have on people like David Ashley Phillips or say Howard Hunt or William William uh, uh, Harvey. Um, now, is your book on Morales or is your book on Phillips? No, my book's on on David Attlee Phillips when when it hopefully gets published in uh, in the near future. His but... son's still alive, isn't he? Who's that? Who Dave, Phillips? Dave, or... Yeah, David Attlee. Yeah, well, I, at least one of David Phillips' sons is alive. Is is specifically uh, Phillips Junior, who I've I've had some correspondence with and has been quite kind of forthcoming and quite helpful. Certainly, I haven't I haven't had a proper kind of sit down with him. He's but he's in it works in a completely unrelated areas and. An anthropologist, I believe. So. How about the, oh wait, no, that's Ag, Ag Agi, whatever his name is. His son runs a magazine. The I forgot what his name. Agi, I think his name is what. Yeah, Philip Agi. Uh, his son runs a magazine or something like that. Uh, Covert Action magazine that talks a lot about what his dad and other things have done too. It's like kind of with Saint uh, John Hunt and his dad with with Howard Hunt. They somehow openly speak out about this, which I find is interesting that they didn't really like what exactly that their parents were doing and what they were told. Yeah, yeah, I guess in some kind of weird Freudian, like psycho, um, perhaps, uh, you know, psychoanalytical way, they're probably trying to come to terms with the sins of the fathers. Um, yeah, I think that is interesting. Um, I mean, I, I don't think, I think with David Phillips' son, the, the kind of you know, relatively limited correspondence I've had. He doesn't seem to be inclined that way. I think he he uh, is is quite tired of all the kind of conspiratorial um, uh, kind of chat and um, 
I don't think he he believes his father was involved in it, but it doesn't sound like he's perhaps spent a great deal, expended a huge amount of energy looking into it, really. Um, I think, I mean, certainly what he did say to me was that his father uh, was was, was very hurt, apparently, to be be at the kind of insinuations that he was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. So I guess you have to kind of, take that kind of statement at, uh, at face value but, but but the question is really what what's i suppose is what what's it worth really because you're not really going to open up to your children are you and tell them if you have if you have been involved in these kind of things um, i think you're going to probably keep that hidden from them most likely what piques your curiosity about either phillips or morales that you think that they might have had some involvement into is it just because their background and some some government operational stuff? I mean, that's a good reason for skepticism for sure. But how does it relate to like the Kennedy assassination or their involvement? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of this probably this this came out of the 1970s government investigations, where a number of um, obviously scandals, CIA scandals, particularly, um, were exposed pertaining to regime change to. Other operations, for example, uh, something you're very interested in, of course, which is the MK Ultra mind control programs, um, uh, FBI operations as well, such as COINTELPRO were, were exposed, um, and and other CIA operations, so particularly assassinations, and that led to the House investigation into the reopening the investigations into the assassinations of President Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And, and that House investigation in the late 70s concluded that the assassination of JFK was a probable conspiracy, although they didn't um, specify as to the identity of such conspirators. Um, and, and that's where a lot of these kind of infamous characters, such as Phillips, um, Hunt, um, Bill Harvey, uh, in fact, you know, the entire pretty much surviving um, CIA kind of leadership, the likes of, of Richard Helms and others were all kind of summoned for uh, to give testimony on on various subjects, including uh, the Kennedy assassination, and, and Phillips became quite a notorious character because of his um, association with Lee Harvey Oswald. The fact that Phillips had been working uh, in Mexico City in 1960, uh, in the, well, in the early 60s, and by his own admission, uh, had been aware of Lee Harvey Oswald prior to the assassination. Um, and had been specifically aware of Oswald's visit to Mexico City, which is shrouded in mystery and is certainly considered to be the kind of Rosetta Stone of the case. What exactly was Oswald doing in Mexico City? Uh, Was he even there? Was he impersonated? All these kind of very strange uh, unanswered questions about that episode. So I think that's where where Phillips has has never, you know, particularly has never really shaken off this rather sinister uh, reputation it stems, I think, uh, a lot from that association, and also from the um, kind of, I guess, allegations or uh, assertions that are somewhat, perhaps, um, half half-hearted. But the allegations that were made by um, a Cuban exile leader called Antonio Vecchiano, who only died a few years ago, actually, um, who suggested that his CIA handler Morris or Maurice Bishop. Um, may have been David Attlee Phillips, um, or at least said, sorry, that his, at the time, his story obviously kept changing, but at the time he originally said in the late 70s that his CIA handler, Morris Bishop, that that was the pseudonym, 
um, had, had witnessed him with Lee Harvey Oswald a few weeks before the JFK assassination. And it, as the investigations unfolded, it became David Atty Phillips became a figure of you know suspicion, probably the most prominent uh, figure thought to be Morris Bishop. And this remained unconfirmed for decades, but in the last few, in the last kind of 10 years, well, last few years, even of his life, uh, Antonio Vecchiano came out and said that Morris Bishop was David Attlee Phillips. But since then, there's been a further twist and um, certain researchers, um, such as, um, I think it's John John Newman, isn't it, have, have, have cast a lot of doubt about Vecchiano's uh, stories and credibility and have suggested that maybe the whole Morris Bishop story was just basically a, a big distraction that Phillips and the likes of Howard Hunt may have just been limit what's called limited hangouts just a kind of a more sophisticated patsy that had been thrown to to satisfy the public when the the kind of old version of the stories one thing well selling disinformation for political reasons isn't uh, isn't uh, I don't think that's not believable you know what i mean there's a lot of things about this case that doesn't make sense you know the bashuka lady the umbrella man there's a bunch of stuff that just is weird incidents is happening in dallas that day and you know to think that there was more than one shooter is not crazy to say that there wasn't a bunch of stuff going on like all the different ramblers that were going on but the mexico city and phillips is do you think that it could be possible he was lying and they that's why there's such confusion with the Mexico City thing? Because I I probably fall in the camp that he never went to Mexico City, even though a lot of people still kind of think he does. Yeah, I mean it's it's very complicated to unpack. I think Phillips in his testimony to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the House investigation, I think we'll call it for short in the late 70s. He got caught um in about four different lies and inconsistencies, really. Um, so he, he specifically um, had told the government house investigation that, uh, for example, that the tapes, the audio tapes, because the CIA was running a massive uh, wiretapping operation from Mexico City, so from their Mexico City station. Uh, Mexico City, just to kind of introduce a bit of background, was the Berlin of the Americas. It was an absolute hive of espionage because of its proximity uh, to the United States, its proximity to Cuba. So all the major uh, countries, such as the Russians, the Cubans, the Americans, as well as all the major American intelligence agencies were based uh, in, or had rather, um, major stations in Mexico City. And a lot of, and one, one, one interesting point to that about Mexico City is that there were films back in the day, like I think the 40s or 50s, that were all propaganda against Mexico, trying to steer people away from Mexico, like saying that all these, and the reason I say that it's interesting is because they did the same thing in Latin America, and we found out that the FBI and CIA and all these people were over in Latin America and Ecuador and all these other places where there's films about saying like horrible this and all this like communist scare tactic type deals. They did the same thing with Mexico City, and then you find out Mexico City is like this foreground for spies. You know, it's like this. It, it's it's just interesting to me where I start looking at all these films now. I'm like, okay, what else were they kind of trying to keep us away from their dirty stuff? Well, I mean, the, on that note, there's, there's certainly, you know, in terms of the, the kind of archival research that I've I've done, there are documents specifically on kind of Phillips's like internal kind of report cards, if you like, a bit like school report cards, where, uh, you know, they have their kind of internal assessments every, you know, year or so. And there's one on, on Phillips's kind of 
sterling work in Mexico City where they comment that he'd almost kind of single-handedly through his connections with kind of assets with uh, particularly Mexican journalists and so on had, had almost single-handedly kind of changed the complexion of um, political life in Mexico <laughs> through his kind of um, intensive propaganda and psychological operations work um so yeah he was he was phillips was was particularly instrumental at, at the heart of what was um in the words of i think it was john uh Witten, who was who was um i think also based in mexico city was another cia officer his code name was celso i think he was tasked by Helms um, in the immediate aftermath of the JFK assassination with the CIA's own internal investigation of the assassination and was then later taken off, having been kind of undermined by Angleton. Um, and, and Angleton, I think, was appointed mainly to that kind of liaison role with the Warren Commission. Um, but uh, but Celso or John Witten, as he came to be known, had, had uh, as, as said that, that the Mexico program that the CIA was running was absolutely massive, and particularly its its kind of surveillance of the Russian and Cuban uh, compounds where Oswald um, was was um, appears to have, have been present um, in late September, early October of 1963. Um, and so there were kind of, there was, um, there were actual, you know, human monitors as they're known, so kind of people working for the agency informants in the the embassies the cuban and, and russian embassies um there were there was obviously phone tapping um there were cameras monitoring the the entrances um and you know they were sifting through the rubbish so this this was kind of one of the, the cia's crown jewels was this kind of massive daily uh, digest of intelligence um and um so oswald kind of was was purportedly picked up in his um, encounters in both uh, the Russian and Cuban embassies, um, on particularly on the the, the, the phone lines, um, and Phillips, one of Phillips's four kind of inconsistencies in his testimony was that he claimed that those tapes had been routinely kind of erased; they'd been routinely recycled, and it later became apparent to government investigators during the seventies, the late seventies, that this wasn't the case; that in fact, FBI um, personnel tasked by Hoover straight after uh, the assassination on 22nd of November, um, had arrived in Mexico City and listened to those tapes and were uh, astonishingly of the opinion that that was not Oswald's voice on the tapes. Um, and even more uh, remarkably is that in April of 64, um, two of the Warren Commission's uh, investigators, uh, one of whom was a lawyer who's, who's still alive, uh, David Slauson, um, also traveled to Mexico City and listened to those tapes. So whether, of course, Phillips was referencing uh, the original tapes, or perhaps uh, he, I guess he can get out of it by saying he was uh, not referring to copies of the tapes, but rather to uh, to the originals. But even so, I think he was he was obviously being not being kind of um, honest about about that particular aspect. Um, but there were other kind of inconsistencies that also became apparent. So he, he didn't come out of that testimony unscathed it looked like he was hiding something did he was there any i guess punishment for him lying in court like that or lying in this investigation um i think he was yeah certainly when you read the, the kind of transcripts he was reprimanded you know in in quite kind of um schoolmasterly way he was kind of told by uh the the, the kind of the um uh, i think it's a lawyer who was who was carrying out the uh 
kind of inquisition, if you like, that uh, that this was a very serious matter. Um, that, you know, they were trying to establish, uh, investigate the assassination of the president and whether there was a conspiracy, whether the CIA was involved, um, and that he was basically very sternly reprimanded. But of course, this is done. This testimony is done under oath, and in the case of Richard Helms, he was um, forced, as a result of his of lying under oath, he he was um, given a uh, he, he was actually had to, to to kind of there was a court case that was put on trial um, as as a former uh, director of the, the CIA for lying uh, to con to, to Congress under oath, and he was he was I think found guilty of that in the case of Richard Helms, and he was given a suspended um, sentence. So um, uh, you know it is yes it is very serious kind of even legally, but I think in the case of Phillips, there probably wasn't enough um, evidence to kind of prove that he'd, um, he'd, he'd uh, I suppose, that he'd uh, done anything that, that was... Um, um, do you think well, he was part sufficient. of the... Do you think he was part of the setup for Oswald, like the little Patsy thing? I mean, a number of people were using his name. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's... What's interesting is that... Um, you know, obviously, we've got the, the 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 Phillips's own kind of admissions in his memoirs that he he knew of Oswald's um, existence, and from that same government testimony that he was aware of Oswald prior to the assassination. But you know, Phillips's cover story was well, Oswald was just uh, another blip on our radar. It was just a walk in some random American who turns up. You know, of which there were supposedly several who turn up. You know, offering their services for whatever reason. Um, to the to kind of Russians and the Cubans, um, and and that was basically his his story. But that story became kind of harder and harder to um, to kind of legitimize and to keep that story going as as you kind of dig deeper and deeper into things, and as as Phillips's own lies and in, 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 inconsistencies became um, apparent. Um, so you know he was. Um, I think he was, you know, he was he was really grilled compared to say the performance of others such as Angleton, who comes out, you know, I would say much better off compared to Phillips. Um, Phillips, you know, was was appeared to be to be hiding quite quite a lot. Um, I think, you know, when you add to that the Vesiana allegations, and then when one of the things that Phillips Phillips had a second memoir, a little known memoir, in which he. Um, did write something about in a bit more a bit more detail than his his more well-known memoir the night watch where in this kind of second memoir which is the kind of secret wars diary he did kind of allude to the fact that his relationship to oswald um was more than just kind of uh, arbitrary or random and that that he may have been monitoring he may have been i think in his in his own words in that second memoir he may have been watching the reaction of the Russians uh, and or rather specifically the Cubans, particularly the reaction of the Cubans to Oswald's kind of provocative tactics. Um, so it suggests, I think there, even by his own admission, that that original story about, um, you know, just just no way that we that, that the CIA could have um, known, you know, anything about this random American who walked in. Uh, in Mexico City to the, the kind of Russian and Cuban compounds and then went on to kill JFK a few weeks later. You know, that, that cover story does start to wear thin, particularly when you focus in, 
on the whole story about um, the kind of the, the, the photographs and the fact that the CIA, despite, again, this intensive surveillance, despite the fact that it had cameras uh, covering the entrances of these compounds, that it couldn't produce a photo um, of Oswald. And when it did produce a photo, it was a photo of a completely different man. Um, so when you, you scrutinize Phillips's story um, on the photos, his, his, again, his, his version was that the camera had broken down um, or wasn't working on the weekends, for example. But Gaten Fonzi, who was one of the House investigators at the time, he managed to speak to some of the kind of agency's personnel and insiders working at the Mexico City station. And it became uh, clear to Fonzi that, that this story was pabulum, that um, the, the, the agency actually had multiple cameras. Um, I think there was some truth to the fact that, the, that a new camera had been um, installed and was being tested and was, you know, removed to see the results and so on. I think that there was probably some truth to that. Um, but it, it does appear from certainly Gates and Fonzie's story um, that there were multiple cameras. Um, and, and there does appear to be kind of evidence from others. Um, you know, that there, there are others such as, I think, Wynne Scott, who was the Mexico City station chief, and others who seem to have hinted at the fact you know that that a photo a photo of Oswald was seen in Oswald, but, sorry, in Mexico City, but has been had been basically destroyed or disappeared. Um, so yeah, I think there's this certainly to try and get to the bottom of why the CIA, you know, it does it does sound like to me like Oswald was there, but why the agency wasn't prepared to produce an actual photo of him. I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think they, they were, you know, and that's something you know you can go into separately. It's a whole other story. I think they had their own reasons, perhaps, for not wanting to produce uh, that photo publicly. Um, so there's there's that kind of whole story that, that again, Phillips got very much caught up in his own inconsistencies. Um, or, you know, if you want to be a bit harder hitting in, in, in uh, I guess, versions that, that beggared belief. Or didn't sound very honest or truthful. Well, he was just—he's uh, he, not in charge of making his own duties and everything, so that he's got to be taking orders from somebody, right? So are they assuming that it's James Angleton that he's getting his orders from? Well, no, he was Phillips would have been under so specifically under Winscott, who was the the chief of station, um, and and I think you know Scott was uh, you know quite a tough boss to work for. He worked extremely hard. He he kind of um was um you know someone with a with a real work ethic he was somewhat perhaps on the spectrum if you like um and he had this kind of uh, ramshackle filing system that only scott really kind of knew how to navigate and how to access using his kind of photographic memory um so win scott was was quite eccentric in his own ways but very demanding and and taxing as a boss and phillips Kind of testified about that um so i think win scott certainly uh, based on you know his biographer um jefferson morley um was quite peeved off about the this kind of um cover story that that you know the mexico city station effectively missed oswald um that was the kind of cover story that was used but win scott really kind of prided himself according to his biographer uh, on his performance and the Mexico City station was, as, as we said, one of the crown jewels. So this idea that they kind of didn't investigate Oswald properly really did, did not sit 
very well with with Winscott. Um, but but I think Winscott himself wasn't doesn't seem to have been involved in anything particularly fishy. I think he was kept out of the loop, and I think he got quite um, miffed about that. The fact that people like Angleton, had, who did, who, and Angleton and his team, people like Angleton's deputy Ray Rocker uh, and others, um, clearly knew a lot more about Oswald based on the kind of documents and memos we now have. Um, for example, the HT Lingual program, which was the male interception program for, uh, for for Oswald, they they were kind of in, intercepting Oswald's letters, and they knew about Oswald going back to his defection to the Soviet Union in '59. Um, so that's that's where the, again the Mexico City episode starts to get even more uh, ramifications to it. Is that the, the memos that have now since been declassified on the Mexico City episode are very confusing because they refer, for example, to a Lee Henry Oswald. Um, that's what the Mexico City station call him. Um, and then, I've seen documents that that was a spelling mistake by the person that was working the filing system, but I see that come up in multiple documents to say it's more than a filing mistake. Yeah, well, that's what... Um, so, so in the marginalia, that's what Wynn Scott had written, S, I believe, SIC, um, implying that it was incorrect. Um, and that correction was actually identified when that memo was sent from the Mexico City Station to HQ, to, to CIA HQ at Langley. Um, and they sent back a memo saying, well, we, we this is, you're probably referring to Lee Harvey Oswald, who, you know, blah, 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 came back from, you know, the Soviet Union and, you know, defected as a Marine, as an ex-Marine, came back in 62. And that was it. And they left it at that. So so the, the, the HQ, um, you know, did correct some of the information, but told the Mexico City station that the last kind of operational information they had on Oswald was from May of 62, and omitted to mention the fact that they knew a lot more than that, the fact that Oswald in uh, the summer of 63 had been in New Orleans, that he'd got into a fight um, with some of the CIA's favorite anti-Castro Cubans, uh, specifically that the DRE, that's the Student Directorate, which was being run, was actually founded by Phillips, was being run um, by at the time by George Joannidis. Um, oh, so it was founded by Phillips. Yeah, I believe Phillips was was you know the, the person who created that that particular Cuban exile group, the DRE, which which included uh, a guy called Carlos Bringer, still alive again, I believe, uh, in his uh, late eighties, roughly, if not ninety by now. Look, they're never going to talk. A... They're never going to talk. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Bringer just, um, I mean, his story, you know, Oswald directly came into uh, contact in, in that time with Carlos Bringer and offered his services, saying, you know, I'm an ex-Marine, I can, you know, help with training you guys. Um, and then a few days later, Oswald's seen on the, you know, on the street corner, handing out these flyers, which are, you know, for the FPCC, the Fair Play. The Cuba Committee, um, with of course that infamous address by 54 Camp Street, which was the yeah the base for of course for Guy Bannister, ex uh, private eye and ex you know Chicago office uh, head head of the ex oop, head of the Chicago FBI office. So um, and 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 a, and a kind of central base for anti-Castro operations. So so that was a very obviously strange uh, story. And then Carlos Bringer and his. Um, uh, you know, a couple of his, I think, um, well, you know, uh, 
colleagues, whatever you want to call them, a couple of the other kind of anti-Castroites got into a fight with Oswald. Um, Oswald gets arrested. The arresting officer, you know, arresting cop says, you know, he, he kind of suspected it was all a bit staged. Anyway, he's arrested. Oswald, bizarrely, uh, as a left supposed leftist, asks for uh, the FBI, <laughs> probably the first and last leftist in the in the history of the world to, to do that, um, gets an interview with Hosty, I think it is, James Hosty, um, and and is let off with, with a fine, but gains enough kind of notoriety and profile that he's interviewed, uh, he's invited onto the radio to be interviewed. Um, and in fact, the people running that, that radio program, I think it was Ed, I want to say, Stucky or Butler, but I can't remember the name now. He's actually an informant for uh, either the FBI or the CIA. But anyway, Oswald, sorry, this keeps shipping up. Let's just try and study that. Um, and and then Oswald is 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 interviewed with with Bringer. Carlos Bringer is also on that show. And interestingly, when you when you read that uh, or listen to it, you know Oswald is actually very intelligent, articulate, and eloquent. You know the complete opposite of this kind of Warren Commission caricature of some you know, lone nut, um, unstable, unhinged, unpredictable sociopath. He's, he comes across as, you know, very reasoned and, and eloquent. Um, so, yeah, that all happened. And then immediately one of the things that's very weird is that straight after the assassination, um, in the immediate aftermath, um, and I think, again, there are documents showing some kind of interactional communication between George Joannides and these kind of groups such as the DRE, um, they start immediately after the JFK assassination spreading rumours that Castro was behind it. Now, you can obviously argue that they were always going to do that. Um, but and, and Carlos Bringer continued this to peddle this story for, for years, if not decades. And he wrote a book called, I think, Red Friday, all about how Castro did it. Um, so this, this, you know, seems like it was... You've got to remember that the CIA was funding... The DRE to the tune of I think fifty one thousand dollars a month. So as you can imagine, that's uh, I believe it was per month. That's that's a hell of a lot of money back back then. Um, so it does look like you know the DRE's performance after the assassination um, was was you know was pre prepared that this was a kind of psyops, kind of a propaganda operation to try and peddle and push this story straight after the assassination that Castro was was behind it. Um, and, and later, of course, Joe Anides is, is, is even more of a notorious figure because he's unknowingly to the House investigation brought in to act as the liaison between the CIA, brought out of retirement, in fact, to act as the liaison between um, the CIA and the House investigation in contravention of the rules that had been laid down that no active, you know, operational officers from 1963 uh, should be should be involved in in that kind of liaison work or any other kind of work with with the House investigation, unless of course they're being brought brought to uh, give testimony or to provide evidence, and and that was only revealed obviously much later. I think in the 90s at the time it was revealed. Uh, Professor Blakey, who was uh, in charge of the, the later in charge of the house investigation realized that the CIA had been kind of playing him and playing the entire investigation um undermining it sabotaging it as they'd done with the Warren Commission withholding information and doing things that were you know much more um obviously uh, nefarious and insidious um you know they had it was you know the the, the fox in the 
in the kind of hen hoop. I mean, um, you know, to have the, the guy who was running the, the DRE in the summer, in 1963, at the time that JFK was assassinated, to then bring him in um, to, to help the House investigation with identifying, you know, documents and so on is, is just beyond belief. Um, and of course, Joe Needis knew where all the bodies were buried, of course. So he, he was the perfect person to do that perform that duty and was later given the kind of CIA's um, highest uh, accolade, I believe. Um, where was Phillips when the assassination took, where was the uh, Phillips when the assassination took place? Well, yeah, uh, sorry, stop doing that. Um, so okay, this book is all a You're good. There's strange. a bit of a delay too, so I'm not trying to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah, sorry, no, no worries. Um, yeah, I mean, Phillips, according to his memoir, was in Mexico City, I believe. Um, but um, there is, you know, circumstantial evidence that he may have been in Dallas. Um, so there is, um, according to Bill Simpich, there's there's a whole series of memos. There's at least one that I've seen in which he's working on the exfiltration of a Cuban asset, I think quite an important uh, Cuban asset for the agency in the days building up to the assassination and on the day itself. So there's a memo identifying, um, I have to stop doing that, let me fix that somehow. Um, okay, let's try, maybe that's gonna work. Um, yeah, so there is one, at least one memo um, on identifying Phillips as being involved in, in exfiltration of a Cuban asset on November 22nd and working alongside, I think it was Tony Saforza. Is that Avardo, um, the guy that they're talking also... about? Sorry, Avardo, the Cuban asset. Um, no, I don't think that that's the is that the Nicaraguan one. Yeah, yeah. That you're you're maybe mentioning no. That's so that's another interesting weird story in the immediate aftermath of the assassination was that this whole story about a guy called Alvardo who uh, turns up and starts making these casting. Uh, he, he starts providing evidence that, that he saw Oswald in Mexico City. Um, back and $5,000 to what he called a red-haired, uh, they use the term Negro, but that's what that's exactly from the documents. I'm not, I don't use that language, but that's from the document of what he said. And then I think everyone proved said that he was a liar or he was fabricating. Yeah, yeah even Phillips later, yeah. Later Phillips even discredits him and, says, oh, it, and he says this again in his memoir, he says, it turns out that Alvaldo was working for Somoza and for the Nicaraguan intelligence and that it may have been a plan to try and, on the part of, of the Nicaraguan dictator Somoza, to try and encourage uh, an, you know, assassinate, uh, an invasion or, you know, of, 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 of Castro's Cuba. Um, but I think, you know, Alvaldo did have, if I'm not mistaken, some kind of relationship with Phillips. So it sounds like it was yet another kind of psyops kind of, propaganda type operation that, that Phillips may have deployed, which just, you know, didn't get quite, you know, wasn't wasn't pulled off. Um, but again, I mean, going back to that Mexico City episode, you look at um, those memos and there's a lot of information being withheld, a lot of confusing information that doesn't add up. You know, the fact that, that, that HQ withheld that critical information that we've just gone through about Oswald in 63 didn't bother telling the Mexico City station, hang on, this guy that you've just reported hanging out in the Russian and uh, Cuban compounds, well, yeah, he was he was actually, you know, 
handing out pro Castro, you know, material in New Orleans. <laughs> Got into a fight with our favorite group, the DRE, blah, blah, blah. You know, none of that's in the memo they reply to. And then they, they actually, despite correcting the Mexico City station on, on Oswald's, the spelling of Oswald's name, um, the other there's other in inaccuracies about his actual physical description, for example, um, and they relay that incorrect information to the other agencies, to the FBI, Army and Navy. Um, so, so some people have, have speculated that this was what's known as a marked or a bent card operation, but it's um, a mole hunt, basically, that Oswald, as he may have been, you know, deployed in, the, in that capacity in the Soviet Union, was again being used as, as part of a mole hunt. Um, and it, it's particularly, you know, of course, Angleton's team as, as the counterintelligence um, team chief who would have been you know, conducting those kind of, of mole hunts. Um, you think the HSCA so was limited because of the fact that uh, in, at least two of the members went down to go investigate Mexico City? But do you think that that was very, very limited in their information they can get on Mexico City because of the fact of all the intelligence operations that are running down there? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that, that obviously the, the the house investigation, yeah, was was very much hampered um, by by information being deliberately withheld that is still withheld sixty years on to this day. We can't get hundreds of files on these characters. So just how do you feel about that, man? It pisses me off. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I I'm fairly philosophical about this. I think uh, one of the you know I I think you know when you look at, at these things morally, yes. Of course, as citizens, we should be angry about, you know, the, this kind of power um, and, um, well, the, the wielding of that power in an amoral, unethical uh, way that we have, you know, the assassination of uh, a democratically elected and popular young charismatic president um, in dubious, um, suspicious circumstances that has been deliberately hampered by you know the investigation of, of which has been deliberately hampered by these agencies that is obviously it is a, a sickening crime um but i think what, one of the interesting things when you start to research these characters and kind of delve into their lives is that of course in order to write kind of or portray them accurately you've kind of got to get in you've got to kind of be be in their shoes a bit You've got to see things from their perspective, understand how they viewed JFK, you know, whether or not, you know, we, we all kind of um, may, may be somewhat uh, somewhat um, ad admiring of, of Kennedy's uh, independence and his, his stance in many uh, areas of, of policy. Um, but for these people, the likes of Morales, Phillips, Hunt, Helms, um, Jenkins, etc. Is this the S force it, that uh, Daniel P. Sheehan mentions all the time? Like the same ones that Watergate burglars. It's always the same four guys or something like that. Well, there's. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole nexus, isn't there, of these people? I mean, it goes back to obviously we were meant to be talking about Morales, and we we haven't got very far with that. That's partially my fault. Um, I mean, if you look at you know Phillips's own memos, you look at obviously all the documentation, the memos, you can see that that in Guatemala there was. Um, Phillips, Hunt, Morales, um, all of this, you know, run under the likes of Tracy Barnes and, um, uh, of course, Dulles, ultimately. Um, you see the same kind of clique, again, involved in the Bay of Pigs, um, some, you know, wider people as well involved by that stage, people like Richard Helms. I don't think Helms, I don't know how involved Helms was in Guatemala, 
Um, but certainly in Cuban operations, the same clique, including, of course, Bill Harvey, who I don't think again was involved in Guatemala. Um, and again, you see them involved in Mongoose, which is still Cuban operations. Uh, Morales is, is well, um, then a lot of these people are involved go off to the, the to a real war in, uh, in, in Vietnam. Some of them are involved in Laos, like Ted Shackley and um, Morales, who'd, who'd, who'd uh, been involved together in, in running the JM Wave station in, in Miami for the Cuban operations they were involved in, I think, Laos and then in the in Vietnam. And then a lot of these same characters, again, involved in Chile against Alinde. Um, and some of them go on, some of the particularly Cuban assets. Um, where, was, where was Morales in Dallas in 63 when Kennedy was killed? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing about Morales. Morales probably gives us the, I think, the single most, if you're looking for hard evidence, I think Morales, David Sanchez Morales is about as close a link you're going to get in terms of hard evidence to proving that the CIA was involved in the assassination of JFK because Morales, David Morales, supposedly confessed um, to his best friend, Ruben Carbajal, and to his, to an attorney, um as well um both of them were in the room because morales uh, was 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 kind of like they all were a heavy drinker basically an alcoholic and um when he got drunk he became very indiscreet um uh, and and on one particular evening with these two uh, friends his his tongue became quite loose and he started um you know i think the, the, the attorney had, had mentioned something favorable about jfk and morales just hit the roof um, and, and basically said, you know, that he was a no good son of a bitch, that he'd been involved in the Bay of Pigs. He'd watched, you know, his own men that he trained wiped out. Um, and then after this, like, terrifying rant, basically, and Morales, you have to remember, was kind of basically a bully. He was, he was a sociopath. He was a psychopath. He was a bully. He was a big, uh, I think, ex-footballer. Uh, ex obviously army guy who was very strong, very you know violent, physical, and alcoholic. Um, he was often used in the kind of riskiest black bag jobs, according to Tom Kleins, who was a, a senior CIA officer. Um, so he, he was he was someone who not only had training in counterintelligence and was much brighter than he let on. Um, but he also, I think, got his hands dirty and actually did did carry out. You know, was was an actual assassin. Um, and according to Ted Shackley, he was he was his chief of operations at the JM Wave Miami station for Mongoose, which was you know the biggest CIA station um, at the time, um, or historically, I think, until the eighties. So um, yeah, so that was M Morales. I mean, he so he then said, you know, he basically said, well. We took care of that. He went on during this rant to say we took care of that son of a bitch referring to to JFK. And, and he actually also said something about that he was there in Dallas when they took care of, of the, the big one or something to that effect. Um, and that he'd been there in Los Angeles as well when they'd taken care of the, the little one, the little bastard, referring to Robert Kennedy. So so I think that's that kind of confession is I guess the problem with these things is if you want to delegitimize it, you can say, oh, well, someone said something to someone doesn't have much traction. But the interesting thing is that more than one other person has backed up this idea that Morales um, is, is someone 
uh, key person, CIA person who who was likely involved in the JFK assassination. First of all, Howard Hunt, um, in his later confessions, a lot of which have interestingly been ignored by the research community. But I think you know Howard Hunt talking very interestingly, um, well, writing both in his uh, biography, American uh, Spy, I think it's called, and also um, in a video with his son, Saint Saint John. Um, and uh, in an article that was an interview that was then covered by Rolling Stone at the time, um, basically Hunt paints a picture of the fact that Morales and um, Frank Sturgis tried to recruit him into the assassination, um, and that that Hunt had asked, you know, who's involved or who, you know, and was told by Morales that it was Bill Harvey, and and Hunt said, well, I'm I'm not going to have anything to do with anything involving that kind of psychotic, you know alcoholic um and supposedly left it at that and was relieved when you know when he realized when it happened of course and realized that he'd not got involved in it in it at all um i mean he described Hunt describes his role as a bench warmer which is a very strange to me description it's like he's some kind of substitute on team kind of hit the hit team or something that's what i said about the s force the s force was the same people that nixon used for like watergate and all that but that team they think that had been in operation for long before nixon like during the eisenhower stuff had just been this team i don't know if it's eisenhower exactly but around jfk's time as well is what the main thing is and they think that this team and it's also a theory that Daniel P. Sheehan has, which is, um, and I think my friend Barry Jones mentioned it to me. I think I talked about him on our first episode together. But JFK was also closing down a lot of the CIA's bases um, that they had and um, making whatever they're making. But he was shutting some of them down, and they thought that was a threat to their job. So they, that was one of the reasons why they think that those guys might have been responsible too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, this, this is what's also been referred to as Operation 40 is the name I know it by. Um, and that was set up um, as part of Cuban operations and Operation 40 yeah, included, I think, a lot of these people, you know, particularly the likes of, of, of Frank Sturgis, amongst others. Um, there's supposedly, you know, there's one photo that supposedly shows them all kind of cavorting at a dinner in, in uh, Mexico City. And it shows, I think, people like, Frank Sturgis, it interestingly shows, I think, um, a guy called, what's his name, Porter Goss, I think, who becomes a future director of the CIA. Um, so this is a very early photo of them, but, you know, I'm not sure if that is them or not. But yeah, Operation 40, I mean, what's interesting is, of course, a lot of these people have been alleged to have been involved in, you know, these kind of black, you know, ops um, in certainly uh, Cuba, uh, also in, in Vietnam, Chile, probably. Um, and some of them, I think, you know, in things like, you know, the Che Guevara assassination, um, according to um, some sources, you know, David Morales was, was involved with Felix Rodriguez and Felix Rodriguez was a, was a CIA asset um, and was later involved, Rodriguez was later involved in Iran-Contra. Um, and Felix Rodriguez, I think he pops up. A lot of these people, again, I mean, Carl Jenkins pops up in the 80s as well, um, which is where, you know, all the allegations around Jenkins stem from, uh, from the, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the the uh, operative who made those those allegations is now now passed away. But, um, but yeah, so, so there's, yeah, there is this, this clear pattern of a network or a nexus of a clique 
of these people who are involved in the most kind of notorious infamous episodes of the 20th century really um and i think that makes sense that, that they kind of trusted each other um and and they knew that they were very effective that they worked well in coordination well, why would you outsource if you have a team that works? You know what I mean? Like if you have some loyal guys that'll do anything you basically want done and they're effective because they've done it before, then it just makes sense to keep using them over and over again. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing that such a relatively small clique could have affected so much kind of seismic change, really. When you think about it, of course, they're not working in isolation, are they? They're working in tandem with all the other resources of empire that are at their disposal of course you're, you're talking about economic warfare and um political action um you know often military involvement as well so um but yeah in terms of in, in kind of covert operations i think this clique you know probably changed the, the course of the the cold war really and and was very effective on the kind of the muscle end of these operations implementing these these things i mean Morales, for example, was involved in the um, secret war in Laos. He was involved in the Phoenix assassination program in Vietnam. He was involved in the, the Chile operations. Um, he was briefly in the Dominican Republic to kind of disable a radio station that they wanted taken down. Phillips was, was interestingly chief of station in the Dominican Republic in 65 when Johnson ordered the, uh, the Marines to invade. Um, and again, Ted Shackley was, was, I think, chief of station out in um, Vietnam when he recruited Morales. And Morales was someone they considered to be very um, able, very loyal, very effective. Um, but yeah, he, he was indiscreet, um, more than one account indicating that from Wayne Smith, for example, who worked alongside him in the Havana um, embassy slash station and um, others as well about this kind of, obviously that JFK confession about the fact that he was quite loose-lipped. He got, you know, a photograph late, this was later in the 70s, taken of him by some local paper with a kind of caption explaining that he was kind of in charge of the kind of counterinsurgency division or something like that. So again, the agency, particularly at that time, wouldn't have appreciated that kind of publicity. And I think Morales towards the end became quite paranoid about his safety and he was living, I think about I mean, New Mexico perhaps, where he'd grown up um, and he had a house built um, and put in the kind of state of the art security and was asked you know what you're 30 miles from the Mexican border why are you why are you so worried about security and he said to this friend I'm not worried about them Mexicans I'm worried about my own guys um, so I think Morales by his own account I think he also said that he knew he'd said to these two friends Carl Bajal and the attorney that he knew too much um, and I think, of course, when you look at the suspicious death, spate of deaths that happened at the time of these 1970s investigations, you see the deaths of Roselli. Morales was, it seems, quite close to Roselli, taught Roselli, the gangster, a lot about um, kind of intelligence tradecraft. Um, so Roselli was was killed in a very, you know, very... Um, Chopped up and put in a barrel, bro. Yeah, yeah, very, just very violent. I think, yeah, um, very strange story as well when it when the coroner's findings. But um, Giancarlo was was murdered as well. Um, you have obviously a whole, whole bunch of other people. Demorin Child, who was Oswald Svengali, you know, shotgun to the head, and there's you know on and on and on. And Morales dies. Um, he comes back from one of his trips to Washington, where 
despite retiring, he keeps getting asked to come back to help out with stuff. And, he, and he's with his best friend, Carl Bahal, and he says, yeah, I haven't been feeling well since I came back from Washington. And then before he knows it, he's been admitted to hospital, put on life support and then dies. And his wife refuses a, a post-mortem. Um, Carl Bahal, I think, tries to go and visit him, finds that, that the room is already surrounded by sheriff's deputies, can't get in. Um, and then this place in the middle of nowhere, I think in the New Mexico desert or whatever, you know, all these you know streams of dignitaries for the funeral turn up, um, you know, to pay their respects to this man who, for them, had been an absolutely integral linchpin to their operations. That suspicious death thing is so frustrating to understand because there's so many things where it's like maybe, and then there's like so many where it's like that's a hundred percent like a throat shop is nuts, but. You get called a conspiracy. I said a throat shop is nuts when you get into the suspicious deaths. But if you even talk about something like that, people go, oh, that's conspiracy talk. I'm like, well, I'm going by what was reported. This is 100% factual on that. I, I think that's one of the, you know, because one of the stories, for example, I spoke to, well, I've speaking, spoken to, you know, to various people. And, and one of the people who've, who've come out in recent years is, a, is an ex-CIA guy called Rolf Mauer Larson. You may have come across him and he's name. been yeah, he's he's interesting because he's probably the only living CIA person who's actually he wasn't involved in anything back then. But he's come out and said, Yeah, I, I can see that this was JFK assassination involved the CIA, but that it would have been, you know, a small clique of people rather than some big national security plot. So whether this is yet another just kind of limited hangout version, the most sophisticated version of it, uh, which is, you know, a few rogue officers like Morales and Harvey and whoever else. Um, I mean, of course, that, that story, you know, could fly. But um, one of these, one of the things that, that goes against it, I think, is, is this, is exactly this, what you've just touched on, is the number of suspicious deaths, uh, you know, after the Warren Commission um, report. And then, again, you see there's a pattern to them when the 1970s investigations hot up. Again, you see the likes of Roselli Giancana killed before they can, you know, give away further information and many others. Um, you have people like Mary Pinchot Meyer, who was a Washington. Um, you've, I don't know if you've come read Mary's Mosaic. Down a trail. Yeah, yeah, killed on a, on a Washington, I think, canal towpath when she's out jogging or something. And, um, you know, she was a high Washington socialite and she'd had an affair with, with JFK. Um, they did LSD and, together in bed. Yeah, yeah, they did LSD, and you know her names are on the, the kind of White House locks. You know, it's it's verified that she was was you know close to JFK, and you know supposedly was was um, influencing him with with this with these mind expanding uh, drugs, and perhaps influencing his turn towards world peace if if that's what was happening. Um, so I think when, when JFK was killed, Mary Meyer was, you know, was devastated. And this is in Timothy Leary, the, the kind of godfather of drugs. Timothy Leary's, you know, the LSD guru in his, I think, memoir where he, he was close to Mary Meyer and he says she was absolutely devastated by JFK's assassination and that she was investigating it uh, later before she was, you know, again, it's whether or not one believes that these were all uh, actual hit jobs, the point is that they are just just yet another you know yet another just convenient death isn't it it's just they stack up um, i mean another one of course is dorothy kilgarlin who was 
a very well-known prominent um journalist who who interviewed jack ruby and you know reportedly said to friends that she was close to cracking the case and was again found dead in 65 supposedly of an and allegedly angleton was at both mary myers and then also dorothy kilgallens and took both their journals i i that, well that's i know about angle the whole angleton story in myers i don't know i've never heard that so about yeah Kilgall apparently broke into her art studio no no dorothy Kilgallen broke into her home and took her journal and i think there's a tape of her him reading something from her diary where i was like how the hell did you get that okay so I know, yeah, I mean, certainly he was caught by uh, Ben Bradley, of all people, the Washington Post later, I guess, or I don't know if at the time, but he was later the Washington Post editor, Ben Bradley, and his wife, because Mary Meyer, I think, was was the sister, was, was Bradley's sister, and she was, I think, the sister of his wife, whose name I've forgotten, I'm afraid. Um, but Ben Bradley was, of course, very close to JFK, but they caught Angleton in there, and that does sound like a very dodgy story, but it seems that um, they did actually trust him and that there was something about the fact that when um, when she died, if, well, I think something like along those lines, perhaps in her last will and testament or whatever, or in her instructions that if anything were to happen to her, I think her sister wanted the diary to be entrusted to Angleton or something along those lines. So that story, as fishy as it does sound, actually, I think when you scrutinize it a bit further, isn't necessarily as crazy as it sounds. Um, so I think obviously Bradley and his wife, uh, Mary Meyer's sister, I think didn't want this information coming out either, that, that, uh, that she'd been having an affair with JFK because I think her diaries, which Angleton stole, contains um, this this information about her affair and also about her own investigations. But yeah, this is the thing Angleton keeps turning up, you know, as part of this cleanup over years and decades. He keeps injecting himself and intervening. Um, he's When Wynne Scott, the Mexico City station chief we mentioned, dies, you know, Angleton swoops in again and, um, you know, meets his, his wife, who's his, his widowed wife, who's in shock and is mourning, and convinces her that he needs to get hold of, of Wynne Scott's, you know, files, including his unpublished manuscript for a novel about the whole Oswald story. Um, and he gets hold of all of this stuff, and it's all, you know, sealed and transported back to Washington and never seen uh, after that. And then when Angleton dies, um, you know, CIA safecrackers had to be brought in to get into his his private cache of saves. And they've supposedly found, according to his biographer, Jefferson Morley, who's an ex-Washington Post journalist himself, they found autopsy photos of Robert Kennedy, and they found a lot of material on Oswald. So quite kind of dark, disturbing stuff in keeping with Angleton's quite dark and disturbing career. Um, so, I mean, again, you know, Angleton, going back to David Slauson, we mentioned him, one of the Warren Commission lawyers who'd, who'd heard the Oswald um, tapes um in in 64 um david slauson who's still alive again started airing his own suspicions in the 70s and got a very spooky call from angleton basically warning him off and saying you know you've been very good and loyal so far then you know i suggest you keep you know cooperating with us so it was kind of an implicit threat and, and angleton ran his own goons he wasn't someone to 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 ignore threats from basically um so yeah, Angleton, that, that's the part where, you know, you kind of go, well, when you're trying to demystify all of this and to decipher and unpack it and you kind of go, well, 
why would if, if you know assuming oswald is of course a patsy by by all accounts including his own um why would why would you choose someone who has all these connections to you particularly to angleton's team um and you kind of think you know surely you would choose someone else if you're particularly if someone like angleton's involved but yet you kind of look at the extent to which angleton went to kind of continue the cover-up and you, you kind of got to ask yourself would you go to that kind of length and to that extent if you were just covering something up or if you were actually involved in it um but it seems very odd i think in the to me as a as a obviously as a non-practitioner i'm not a professional in in terms of how they would have carried things out but it does seem strange to me that it does seem to violate tradecraft that you would use that if this was a top level operation if we're assuming that the kennedy assassination if we're saying it was a cia operation or a national security operation that was you know that people like alan dulles richard helms that they had given the orders um you know and that people's very senior people like angleton were involved that you would use someone like oswald who's got all these ties and connections to you it does seem to me to violate Craft, but I think obviously this was 1963. Nobody imagined uh, perhaps that, that any of this stuff would come out, you know, f f within a decade or so. Um, but it does seem to me that, that you would do things in a more kind of careful way, that you would choose someone perhaps more anonymous who doesn't have the advice. Um, so that's, that's yeah, th these kind of aspects of the story, you know, remain very mysterious, don't they? whole damn case is mysterious but i still i still appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show today yusuf is there a place where people can find any of your links and dude your book it's got to come out soon you got to get on that i'm telling you i'm already ready to read it i need to learn more about him i mean you explained a good bit but i'm just curious to what you all how thorough you went into him into who's right into david atley phillips oh uh, phillips yeah i mean He's, he's a fascinating character because he wasn't just a spy or a spook um, or a covert operator. He was... He's a spider know, with legs is what's, what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was um, the, you know, the, the greatest cover-up artist. He was... Um, and he'd been, you know, in the war. He was a prisoner of war. Uh, and, you know, in a, in a PO, German POW camp, he escaped. <laughs> um, been shot down by the Germans, captured, escaped twice. Um, he'd been an actor, a, a writer, um, you know, all of these things, and so he was—he was a man of, you know, of of, of many, um, you know, traits, if you like, and he deployed all of those kind of skills in his work, ultimately as a spy on the world stage. Um, he was—he was, you know, a kind of a zealot-like character. If you've seen the Woody Allen film or Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump perhaps is a more apt reference in some ways because he pops up in all these weird unlikely places he's in guatemala he's in the bay of pigs he meets jfk he knows oswald or knows of him he's in the dominican republic he's in chile you know he's accused of of being oswald's handler when all of this pops up in the 70s so he's he's um he's an absolutely i think fascinating character and, and obviously he's been the, the subject of a lot of um allegations over you know from from over the past few decades by the research community but it seems interestingly that, that, that a lot of people now feel 
that maybe that he was along with people like Hunt and Morales and Harvey, you know, if they were involved, that that, that wasn't the full the full extent of the story and that they were kind of this kind of rogue story of a few bad apples, you know, was was just um the, the CIA was perhaps prepared to sacrifice them. You know, these were, in the words of David Talbot, whom you've had on the show and has written the phenomenal book, uh, The Devil's Chessboard, on, on the life of Alan Dulles and the rise of the CIA. Um, you know, in the words of, of David Talbot, you know, these men were indispensable until they were expendable. And that perhaps people like Phillips and Hunt during the 70s acted as as a diversion from from others, from perhaps something bigger or people who are more senior. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's likely that, I think it's very likely that people, to me, to my mind, I think Morales and Harvey definitely involved. I think the jury's still out on how much people like Phillips and Hunt knew. Um, I suspect they must have had some kind of involvement, but I think it may have been, they may have been potentially out of the loop or they may have been, you know, given a very limited amount of need to know information um or, or they may have just simply been entrapped by by others as, as people like bill simpich have argued so it's very very hard to tell um but uh, yeah it's, I mean, the interesting thing is when i started writing the book i was convinced that phillips based on everything i'd heard and seen online and in books and so on i was convinced that phillips was involved and in, now i'd say it's 50 50 i think it's it's hard to be to be sure we, we probably won't, won't ever know to be honest whether he was specifically involved as an individual, but I think clearly there was a clique of 15 to 20, probably CIA officers who who were very likely involved um, in, in the Kennedy assassination. And I think the evidence for that is increasingly um, more than just good circumstantial evidence. I think when you put all the pieces together, it's it's looking more and more kind of suspicious. And we obviously know much more than we could have ever imagined, I think, at, at this point, in spite of all the attempts to obfuscate and to withhold information and to destroy it um so yeah we'll, we'll wait for the 60th anniversary and hope that in the coming years we we discover more and more robbie through you know the sterling work of, of young of the new generation such as such as ourselves and particularly yourself is you know i'm i'm now middle middle aged so we're relying on your kind of i'm getting there trust me. I'm, I'm getting there uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes it will make you age that's true <laughs> uh yusuf where can people find your links man twitter any other links you'd like to promote so i'm yeah i've, I've obviously hoping that the, the book on uh, phillips and uh, his clique and the story of the cia during the cold war that will hopefully come out in in the near future um but in terms of my journalism you know feel free to read my material on particularly the uh, Independence website. That's a British newspaper. If you go online and search for, for my name uh, in the Independent, you'll, you'll find my profile with a lot of articles, including ones that were written, written a, a few on JFK there, a couple on, one on the assassination and one on uh, his life um, and legacy and one on Jackie, the movie. So um, plenty of material there. And if you, if you want to see things in a bit more detail, there's my Medium blog, which delves into more left field matters. I'll make sure I link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.